Okay, so in this part we're going to see uh, transport of carbon dioxide. It's a little bit different than the oxygen. The oxygen gets to the hemoglobin and that's the way it's transported. The carbon dioxide is carried in three ways. Dissolve in the plasma first, second, attached to hemoglobin, and third, as bicarbonate, which is the most important. That's the most important uh, way of transport uh, of the carbon dioxide. And here's when we get this chemical reaction again. This is this enzyme called carbonic anhydrase, and that's the one that mediates this transformation of carbon dioxide into carbonic acid first, and then the carbonic acid, since it's a weak acid, it will dissociate into the carbonate and hydrogens. Carbon dioxide, we find it dissolved in the plasma, but that's not the way actually uh, gets out like as carbon dioxide. It gets transformed into bicarbonate and it travels in the blood in that way. When it reaches the alveolus, then it goes back again and it trans transforms into carbon dioxide and is released quickly at the alveolus. So we don't see actually carbon dioxide like a molecule in the blood mainly. We see it converted into bicarbonate. And that's why whenever we breathe more carbon dioxide or we don't eliminate carbon dioxide from the blood, it gets accumulated and it has an influence on the amount of hydrogens and changes the pH. And since the carbonate is a negative ion, an anion, there's something called chloride shift because when the carbonate is forming the red blood cell, it goes out into the plasma and it has to be exchanged, traded with another anion. Bicarbonate is, has a negative charge. So if it leaves the red blood cell, it has to be exchanged by a chloride in order to keep the charges balanced in the, inside the cell. That's what we call chloride shift because it's the exchange of one bicarbonate which has a negative charge with a chloride that also has a negative charge. So there's no loss of charges. There's always balancing, uh, balance of the charges. And that's what we see here in this graph. Um, we see the carbon dioxide dissolved in the plasma, which is about 10%. Carbon dioxide combined with hemoglobin, about 20%, but most of it, 70%, is in the form of carbon or bicarbonate. And what happens inside the red blood cell, carbon dioxide goes into carbonic acid, carbonic acid goes into bicarbonate, leaves the cell, and is treated with a chloride in order to keep the charges. But this carbon dioxide can diffuse to the tissues, to the cells, or to the alveolus. But mainly is transported along as bicarbonate ion. We see the same thing that happens in the lungs. Carbon dioxide and the chloride shift happening here.
from in and out the red blood cell. So acid-base balance. Some words about acid-base balance. We also had a lab on this. We review respiratory acidosis, uh, respiratory alkalosis. pH, normal, 7.35 to 7.45. Carbonic acid, which comes from carbon dioxide uh, transformation, is called a volatile acid because it can be transformed into gas and it can be breathed out. But there's other type of acids called non-volatile, which are like the lactic acid, ketone bodies, but cannot be breathed out. They will stay in the blood, but the kidneys can get rid of them. That's why both lungs and kidneys are involved in the control of the acid-base balance. Here is how the bicarbonate works as a buffer. Because if there's an excess of hydrogens, that will combine with the bicarbonate, giving place to carbonic acid. Now this buffer, chemical buffer, will not be forever because the bicarbonate ran out. And then we have to modify breathing in order to get rid of carbon dioxide or get more of it in order to balance the amount of hydrogens. And at the same time, the kidneys will compensate if the lungs are not able to completely control this. Kidneys will step in and release hydrogen in the urine. That's the main way of regulation of the kidneys or retaining the carbonate, not excreting them. So we define acidosis when the blood pH goes below 7.35. And there are two types, respiratory acidosis caused by hypoventilation. And metabolic acidosis, which is caused by excessive production of acids or loss of bicarbonate, <laughs> like we see in some cases of diarrhea. And always this chemical reaction will be working to balance this off. And the other problem is alkalosis, when the blood pH goes over 7.45, which can be, again, respiratory and metabolic. Respiratory is caused by hyperventilation. And metabolic alkalosis, by overproduction of the bicarbonates or loss of digestive acids, like in excessive vomiting. We lose uh, gastric content, which is acidic, acidic, and we get an imbalance, going to metabolic alkalosis. Ventilation controls or regulates the pH to a certain degree. Hypoventilation occurs when uh, pH is too high and we need to accumulate more carbon dioxide, so we hypoventilate. 
or if the pH gets too low, acidic, the reaction will be hyperventilation in order to get rid of more carbon dioxide from, from the blood. as a compensation. As a compensation, that's what happens. That's what we say here. Person with metabolic acidosis will hyperventilate because of the acidosis, trying to compensate. And someone with metabolic alkalosis will hypoventilate trying to compensate the pH. Okay, now that we have done this uh, acid-base balance, this is a perfect moment to switch into the next topic, which is the function of the kidneys. Because here we're gonna see more mechanisms that will control partially the acid-base balance. Urinary system, the main, main organ here are the kidneys. And it's a very simple system in terms of components Organs, but the kidneys have a very complex structure and a complex physiology. A review of the anatomy will show us here the internal composition or structure of the kidney. First, if we make a section like this, we'll see that the ureter, which is connected to the kidney, comes actually from a big collector space or collection space called the renal pelvis, which actually receives many connections from lobes, renal lobes, which are these sections that are composed by this triangular shape known as a renal pyramid, which looks darker actually, and surrounded by a thin area called the cortex cortex. And to differentiate what the pyramid is called the medulla and the cortex outermost. So the tip of each of the pyramids actually drains to filtrate into these kind of cups, spaces called minor calyx, major calyx, and all of them are collected in the renal pelvis and drained to the ureters. So what happens there inside in the renal lobes is actually the filtration of the plasma, plasma of the blood. This is a summary of the main functions of the kidney, basically regulation of extracellular fluid in terms of volume, get rid of wastes, things, metabolic products, 
controls how much electrolytes we have, and the pH, acid-base balance. Those are the main functions of the kidney. Now, going to the microscopic structure, we need to speak about the nephron, which is a functional unit, anatomical unit, functional unit, in, in terms of microscopic uh, view. Millions of nephrons in each kidney. The nephron consists of a series of small, very small tubules associated with blood vessels. So here, the nephron is actually the filter. This is where the blood is filtered. And this nephron and tubules will get fluid that is filtrated from the blood, modify it in different ways, and at the end of the road, we have the urine being eliminated to the ureters, and then from there, uh, urinary uh, ducts. There's a representation in yellow of the nephron and trying to figure how the nephrons are located here in the cortex and the medulla of the renal lobe. The nephron, the main part of the nephron is right here called the glomerular capsule, where you can see one small blood vessel coming in and another small blood vessel coming out. That's exactly the place where the filtration occurs. And following the glomerular capsule, we have a series of tubules, which are first the proximal convoluted tubule, followed by the loop of Henle, followed by the distal convoluted tubule, and connected to a collecting duct. This collecting duct, all of them will drain to the minor calyx, as we see here in this other one. So along this way, along the, all these tubules, there will be modification of this filtrate in different ways. We'll see how. A detailed view of the nephron, the beginning of the nephron is shown here. We see an arterial coming in. It's a bunch of capillaries draining into another arterial. Afferent coming in, efferent coming out. And all these capillary vessels are surrounded by a capsule called glomerular capsule or bombus capsule. And filtration is shown here as these arrows. All these molecules are filtered from the blood to inside of the glomerular capsule. That is the filter of the kidneys. Well, those capillaries are special. They have fenestra, they have pores that facilitates the filtration. But those pores determine what components go through, what components are not filtered. Like, cells are not filtered. Blood cells, they are not filtered. Proteins are not filtered because they are really large molecules. And uh, last week in urinalysis, we discussed that proteins are not supposed to be present in the urine because they cannot be filtered by the size. And so that fluid entering the glomerular capsule is called the filtrate. Not urine yet, it's called the filtrate. Now that filter is composed by many layers. 
And from the blood vessel to the glomerular capsule, we have all these layers. First, the capillary blood vessels, which have pores. So let's say a molecule has to go through those pores. And then it will find a basement membrane called glomerular basement membrane. And then going through, we'll find the glomerular capsule. There's a first layer of cells called podocytes. And in between these cells, there are some slits that are like diaphragm, pores, that will be another component of this filter. And going through all these layers, the fluid or this molecule will be in the glomerular capsule. Here in this graph, we see this picture showing the glomerular capsule, the glomerulus. Glomerulus is a term for all these bunch of blood vessels, the capillary blood vessels. That's what we call glomerulus. And the glomerular capsule is part of the nephron that surrounds these blood vessels and connects to the proximal community tube. We see the fenestra, the pores, and the blood vessels. All these blood vessels are surrounded by the podocytes, which belong to the glomerular capsule. And going more in detail here with the layers, we have the endothelium, the pores, then we find the basement membrane, and finally the slits, the spaces in between the podocytes in uh, the other side of the membrane or the barrier. So all these fenestra plus the slits will determine the spaces by which the molecules will be filtered. How the filtration occurs? It's a game of pressures again. Hydrostatic pressure, colloidal osmotic pressure. We see some numbers here to show this. First, the blood coming inside the blood vessel is a, has a hydrostatic pressure, which is actually the blood pressure, 55. And opposing to this pressure, we have colloidal osmotic pressure and the hydrostatic pressure on the other side of the membrane. And we have a result, net filtration pressure of 10, which means that filtration is happening. But imagine someone has low blood pressure, it's not 55, it's 40. So they will be in trouble, there won't be filtration. That's why we said when we're in cardiovascular that the kidneys, they need to have certain pressure, mean arterial pressure, to guarantee the blood flow. That's the reason also why people in shock after accidents, bleeding, massive bleeding, with very low blood pressure, they don't produce urine. There's no filtration. There's not enough pressure uh, to facilitate the filtration. Now we can measure this filtration. We call the filtration rate, actually glomerular filtration rate or GFR. And it goes around 120 milliliters per minute. <coughs> we make some numbers here. We end up with this amazing volume of blood or plasma that is filtered, 180 liters per day about 45 gallons. What that means, 
That means that in a day, in 24 hours, that is the amount of plasma that is filtered by the kidneys. Now, we don't urinate 180 liters every day. We urinate one liter approximately. That means that most of this filtrate is reabsorbed. 180 liters filtered by the kidneys initially, but then 179 are filtered back or reabsorbed. And we eliminate only one liter or two liters depending, and that's how the kidneys regulate the volume. Now this GFR is regulated different mechanisms. One of them is sympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic nervous system and how this GFR is controlled, the afferent arterial. It's like if you have a big bucket of water connected to the faucet and you open, the water flows and it starts to fill up. Then you make a hole in the bucket so the water will drain. And if you want to keep the balance, you need to regulate the amount of water that comes in, open or close the faucet, the sink. Same thing. In order to guarantee the filtration, the afferent arterial has to have the perfect diameter so more or less pressure comes inside the glomerulus. Sympathetic nerves help for that. And the GFR decreases when the afferent arterial constricts. Autoregulation. The kidneys have its own mechanism. They detect how much volume is going through, how much volume is being filtrated, and it may dilate or it constrict. And actually, the GFR will not change. And that's what happens every single day. If you are not drinking water, enough water during the day, or your pressure is relatively lower than normal, you don't notice, but your body's getting all this input. And adjusting this, if you have a decreased blood pressure for that, then you're afraid that you will dilate. So there will be the exact amount of filtration rate during the day. Won't even, you won't even notice but your kidneys are regulating and making this happen one liter of urine every day approximately and if you don't drink water your body will adjust unless you have a deprivation of water or overhydration. in that case you will see differences but this is fine regulation of the kidney all the time The contents of salt and water are important for the kidney. We mentioned this, reabsorption is one of the main processes that happens in the nephron. 180 liters of water are filtered, but only one or two liters are excreted in urine. Now, but there's a minimum. There's a minimum that the kidneys have to excrete in order to guarantee that the wastes are being eliminated. That's called obligatory water loss, and it's stated that 400 milliliters. That means that we have to, at least, the kidneys have to produce 400 milliliters of urine every day, at least, to guarantee that our wastes are being eliminated, nitrogen, urea, etc. If someone is urinating less than 400 milliliters, then that may mean trouble. That may mean oliguria, we call it, the kidneys may, 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 be happening, may be having some problem to filtrate. 
So the first concept here, filtration first, determined by the pressure. But then most of these molecules that are filtered here will be reabsorbed. For example, glucose. The glucose is filtered, but it will be reabsorbed, all of it. We don't lose glucose. Normally, we have diabetes, it's different. But especially sodium, chloride, water will be reabsorbed. And we have some numbers here. 65% of salted water is reabsorbed across the proximal tubule. Additional 20% is reabsorbed in the loop of Henle in the next segment of the nephron. And 15%, the rest, is absorbed later in the distal convoluted tube. This guarantees a proper hydration level all, at all times. And the third process that the nephron uh, has is secretion. So most of the molecules will be filtered, and most of them will be reabsorbed. But additionally, there are other molecules that will not filter or have different mechanisms, but they have to be secreted to the tubules. And we have as a result here, finally, excretion, which is like the net the net loss of these wastes, molecules, ions that we uh, have to get rid of. Filtration, reabsorption, and secretion. Those are the main three processes of formation of urine. So when we say excretion, that is actually urine. Urine that will just be collected and sent to the urinary ducts. But there's even more, because after the proximal convoluted tubule, the next segment is called the collecting ducts. And there is more regulation at that point. This is the place where the ADH, or antidiuretic hormone, works. And this is how the water, especially, the water is, 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 is secretion is regulated. And there are channels, special channels here in the collecting ducts called aquaporins, which are proteins that are regulated by the ADH, which is antidiuretic. So the ADH controls or regulates the water that is lost. But most of the processes along the tubules is commanded by osmosis. Salt is reabsorbed water will follow. And to have an idea of this, we see these numbers which are osmolality of the filtrate and of the urine at the end of the road. Here at the beginning, when the filtrate just goes through the membranes, it's 300, the filtrate is just like the plasma. The fluid here is just like the plasma. It has 300 million moles. But along the way, this osmolality will start changing when it gets into the loop of Henle. And you see how it goes 
400, 600, 800, even 1200, 1400, but then returns to 400, 200, and it can even get lower to 100 to the collecting ducts. And here again, another set of regulations will happen depending on how much water we have in our body, some water that can be absorbed, and the osmolality of the urine at the end is usually higher than the plasma, but it can be variable depending on our needs. For instance, if we have a very concentrated urine, like what happens in the very early morning, the first morning urine, is usually dark. It contains a lot of solutes, high osmolality. Because during the night, we usually don't drink water, and all these wastes are more concentrated and less amount of water. But during the day, the urine is usually diluted because we are drinking water, we are eating, there's more water that has to be eliminated. So that osmolality will change along the day. And that determines actually how much water we retain, we lose, all along the nephron, how it changes osmolality along the way. Clearance. What happens in the kidneys is clearance. Clearance is understood as the removal of wastes. Ions, wastes that we don't use, we don't need it, have to be get rid of. Renal clearance. Filtration is the first step. Reabsorption is the second step. And secretion is the final step. So clearance is a whole process. Is how much, let's say, urea I have in the blood and how much urea will be eliminated at the end. And that involves, as we said, three processes, filtration, reabsorption, and secretion. So to estimate the excretion rate of a molecule, we have to do this. Filtration, which is elimination plus secretion, which is also elimination, minus reabsorption. So how much is filtered, how much is secreted, and how much of that amount is reabsorbed? And we have the excretion rate. That happens, that this is different for every molecule that we have in our plasma. And that depends on the GFR. That's one of the most important things, the filtration, which happens here in the capsule of the glomerulus. We actually measure that, the GFR, and it's a good index of the kidney function, especially in people with diseases like diabetes, hypertension, chronic hypertension, where the kidneys suffer after many years with the disease. Here we have a summary of this, clearance depending on filtration, reabsorption, secretion, and some examples of some molecules here. For instance, here's the glucose. We mentioned the glucose. It's filtered, but completely reabsorbed. Concentration in the renal vein is the same as the renal artery, so the same comes in, the same comes out. Clearance, zero. We don't get rid of glucose. We need the glucose. It's filtered, but completely reabsorbed. Proteins, they're not filtered at all. 
clearance is also zero. Urea. Urea is filtered and partially reabsorbed. So the clearance is less than the GFR. Comparing, urea has to be eliminated. There's a clearance of urea that we, that we have. Glucose is completely reabsorbed. It's filtered, but it is completely reabsorbed in the proximal tubule. That happens in the proximal tubule very quick. By facilitated diffusion, simple diffusion, secondary active transport, coupled with sodium, but it's completely reabsorbed. Now that reabsorption of glucose happens thanks to the presence of these proteins called transporters. Glucose and sodium are transported together. And there's a determined number of these proteins. This is measured as TM, or transport maximum, which means that there is just a determined number of transporters. If too much glucose is eliminated, not all of it will be reabsorbed. There's a limited number of transporters. Whenever it gets saturated, if there's more glucose than it's supposed to be, then that glucose will be lost extra glucose. That is what happens in diabetes. Now the TM for glucose, the TM for glucose is 180. What means? That number means 180 milligrams of glucose in the blood. That's the TM. That means if someone has more than 180 milligrams per milliliter of glucose in the blood, when the glucose filters, not all of it will be reabsorbed, and some of it will be eliminated in the urine. And that's how, if someone has diabetes and the glucose levels are 200, 300, just 180 can be reabsorbed, and the excess will be eliminated in the urine, and that can be detected with the reagent strips. That's one of the ways to diagnose diabetes. Not the main, but it's uh, one of the signs that someone with diabetes may have. But only if the levels of glucose are higher than 180. If someone has 100, 120, that's perfectly normal. It is handled by the kidneys very well. All of the glucose is reabsorbed. Acid-base balance is also controlled by the kidneys. And that's based on also on the control of electrolytes, especially sodium, potassium, chloride, carbonate, phosphate. So we know sodium is important for control of the blood volume and blood pressure. Potassium for cardiac muscle, skeletal muscle. And a hormone is involved here, aldosterone, which is secreted by the renal cortex, adrenal cortex. Aldosterone regulates the excretion and reabsorption of sodium and potassium. What aldosterone does is reabsorption of sodium 
and secretion of potassium. And that's happened, that happens in the distal tubule and collected, collecting duct. How the aldosterone works? It's part of this system, renin, angiotensin, aldosterone. So what may happen is, is if there's an increase of blood potassium, that will be the signal or trigger for stimulation of secretion of aldosterone in the adrenal cortex. Or if the sodium falls in the blood, that will also stimulate uh, the production of aldosterone. In the kidney, exactly how this happens is by the action of this group of cells called the juxtaglomerular apparatus. Where is that? That is located here in between the two arterioles that get into the glomerular capsule and the distal tube. These groups of cells, the granular cells, macular denser cells, they are part of the juxtaglomerular apparatus. And this juxtaglomerular apparatus will detect the concentration of sodium, potassium, the volume, and they will send signals for activation. As we see here, the sequence is here. If we have a decrease in sodium in the plasma, that will be detected by the juxtaglomerular apparatus. The granular cells will produce renin. The renin will circulate in the blood and convert the angiotensinogen and angiotensin 2. The angiotensin 2 will be converted to angiotensin I mean, from 1 to 2 by action of this enzyme. And the angiotensin 2 will stimulate adrenal cortex to make aldosterone. And the aldosterone promotes reabsorption of sodium. So we recover from that loss of sodium and promote secretion of potassium. At the same time, increases the blood volume and raise the blood pressure. So that's the whole sequence of events of regulation of sodium, potassium, and volume, which is also shown here. Aldosterone renin, angiotensin, aldosterone, and the control by reabsorption of sodium increase. The macula densa is part of these cells located in the distal tubule, just the glomerular apparatus, and they mainly regulate the glomerular filtration. If there is sodium, water, more or less in the filtrate, then the signal, a signal will be sent to the afferent arterial. And this afferent arterial will constrict or dilate, limiting the filtration rate as we discussed. These are auto-regulation of the kidney from the macular densa to the afferent arterial. And it's a typical negative feedback. If there is more sodium and water in the filtrate, 
then production of renin is inhibited and everything, all the process will be reversed, less reabsorption of sodium, and in the other way, it helps to control the excess of sodium in the blood. And there's an additional mechanism for the control of sodium and volume and pressure, which is the AMP, or atrial natriuretic peptide. This has the opposite action to aldosterone. When the blood volume increases, the atria will make this hormone AMP, the atria of the heart. And the kidneys will excrete more salt, therefore more water, and the pressure will be balanced out. So it's always aldosterone AMP working opposite to each other. I'm sorry, it works opposite to what? Aldosterone AMP, they work opposing each other. Now the acid-base regulation of the kidney. We mentioned that for acid-base regulation, the lungs will control the levels of carbon dioxide, but the kidneys are able to eliminate hydrogens or retain bicarbonates in order to control the acid-base balance. That happens in the proximal tubules. There are pumps that can exchange sodium with hydrogens. And the bicarbonate can be reabsorbed if we need more bicarbonate to balance with the amount of hydrogens. Always thinking on the reaction, carbonic acid, bicarbonate, uh, plus hydrogen ions. Now the bicarbonate is a large molecule and cannot cross the tubule, so it has to be converted to carbon dioxide and hydrogen. So even here, the carbon dioxide and bicarbonate will be uh, converted to each other for a better transport. Because the carbon dioxide now can cross the tubule cells easily. And once on the other side, it is reconstituted into bicarbonate. That's what we see here. This is a figure of the tubule, proximal tubule, and an amplification of the walls. We see the bicarbonate down here. Since it cannot cross the wall of the tubule, it has to be converted into carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide will diffuse easily, will get into the cell of the proximal tubule, but it has to go back to bicarbonate, as all this way, bicarbonate, and now this bicarbonate goes to the blood. That's how the bicarbonate is transported. It has to be converted to carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide crosses and then gets into bicarbonate again. But that's the net effect, bicarbonate. We need to reabsorb bicarbonate and that, that happens. Now kidneys can compensate pH that was altered by respiratory problems. That was, that, that's what, what happens in people with asthma. They have 
respiratory problems. They cannot breathe. They cannot eliminate carbon dioxide, and they get into respiratory acidosis. The process continues for seven days, and the pH of the blood goes lower. Now the kidneys will try to compensate that long term, more than seven days. Same in alkalosis. Less bicarbonate will be reabsorbed. And in acidosis, proximal tubules can also control this through metabolism of one amino acid called glutamine. Extra bicarbonate goes to the blood to compensate for acidosis. And uh, a compound called ammonia, based on nitrogen, will buffer the amount of hydrogens in the urine. Now, some examples or clinical applications related with the concepts of physiology of the kidneys. First, the use of diuretics. Diuretics are medications that are used first in treatment of blood pressure, high blood pressure, in treatment of edema, which is swelling. What they do is increase the urine volume make the person urinate more, eliminate fluid. And that decreases the blood volume and helps. But it has to be in a very controlled way, otherwise it will be excessive loss of water. There are different types of medications or diuretics. They have different mechanisms. One of the most used is called Lasix, which has the following mechanism, the loop of healthy, it's called loop diuretic, inhibits salt transport. If, it's in, if it inhibits salt transport, the salt, sodium, will remain in the urine, in the filtrate, and it will pull water with it, and that way eliminates more water, and inhibits 25% of water reabsorption. That's one of the most used, very easy to stop the effect, there are others called thiazide diuretics that inhibits the salt transport but in the distal tubule. Inhibits water reabsorption but up to 8%. This is very well used in uh, treatment of high blood pressure. One of the things that are used. Other are uh, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. They are weaker inhibits water reabsorption, and promotes excretion of the carbonate. All these diuretics are used in different clinical situations with different purpose because of their mechanism. Another type is called osmotic diuretic. As the name says, it's osmotic, promotes diuresis, like manitol, which is a compound that it is given and it's eliminated, it's filtrated. When it's filtrated, it pulls water with it. It helps to eliminate water, and actually a lot of water. Or other diuretics are, are aldosterone antagonists blocking the reabsorption of sodium 
and potassium. The mannitol, for instance, is used in cases of uh, cerebral edema, people that have important trauma in their head and the brain swells up. We need to act quickly and eliminate the water from there in the first minutes. So mannitol is given, it actually gets all the water from it and eliminates it uh, in the urine. But only as an emergency thing, it's not treatment the long term. And this is showing the main places where these diuretics work, loop diuretics, thiazide diuretics, carbonic anhydrase, potassium sparing, the aldosterone antagonists. And to assess the function of the kidney, we have different tests. One of them is called inulin clearance because it helps to assess how well the filtration has happened, how well this compound called inulin is being excreted and cleared. Albumin excretion rate. The albumin is not supposed to be excreted in the urine, but if there is renal damage, like what happens in hypertension or diabetes, we can find albumin in the urine. Proteinuria. Over-excretion of proteins because of damage of some of the components of the filtration membrane. And that usually is seen in people with uh, lupus, infections of the kidneys, chronic inflammation of the kidney, and that's called nephrotic syndrome, excessive loss of proteins. And when there is too much kidney damage, the filtration, the filters are not working properly, not filtering where they're supposed to filter, first step may be acute renal failure. Kidneys fail or lose the ability to control the volume, pH, concentrate solutions very quick, sometimes in hours, but usually some days. And that can happen because of atherosclerosis, the renal arteries are obstructed, renal tubules are inflamed, infected, some autoimmune reactions, some chronic inflammation, or damage made by some drugs, intoxication, or side effects of some drugs. One of these chronic inflammations that we mentioned are known as glomerulonephritis. So most of them are considered autoimmune diseases. There are antibodies made against the kidney components, and some of them, especially after streptococcus infection, that's why it's important to know if someone has a pharyngitis, uh, bacterial pharyngitis, we need to take cultures and find out what type of streptococcus is involved. Because some strains of streptococcus can give place to glomerulonephritis years after, even years after the infection. And the glomeruli are destroyed, the pores are bigger now, proteins are lost, and proteins are lost, that increases osmotic pressure, leads to edema, 
loss of proteins, any things are not corrected or not controlled properly and the disease continues damaging the kidneys like glomerulonephritis of any type, diabetes after many years, atherosclerosis, hypertension, or even kidney stones, then the kidneys will, the function will go down to 50, 60%, 40%. And the main problem is the accumulation of wastes. One of them is urea. We call that uremia. The urea is very toxic for the body, for the brain, for the liver. And uh, that's the main reason why people have different complications. And they have to be connected to a hemodialysis machine that will get rid of the, of the urea and other wastes. Hemodialysis machines are actually kidneys. They are just artificial kidneys. They have a filter. They have a set of hoses, connections, and at the end is a filter that filtrates all the wastes and uh, returns the blood back to the body, completely filtered. But that gives you some days only, and you have to repeat the hemodialysis, depending on the needs, twice a week, three times a week, and depending on how worse, how bad the, the, the situation is. All right, that's the last one. Any question, any comment? So this Thursday, we have the lab on digestion. It's chemical digestion. Uh, the lab report is already posted. And uh, I'll, I'll give you your reports for the exam with the scores and everything on Thursday. Okay.